Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Thanks for joining us. This week, we look at the global climate strikes that are approaching a serious moment of inflection with the arrival of Greta in the United States and two big moments coming up in the next month. We look at where we are and ask where we go from here. Plus, we speak to Isra Hersey, Executive Director of US Youth Climate Strike. Thanks for being here. So thanks for being here this week. Um, We have a great episode for you today as we dig into one of the most exciting and fast-moving areas in the whole global response to climate change. And we look at where we are on the global climate strikes. This week, a lot has happened. Greta Thunberg arrived in New York uh, the day before yesterday after sailing across the Atlantic to a rapturous reception in Manhattan and is now, as we speak, striking outside the UN. In the coming weeks, she'll be spending time on the eastern seaboard as well as joining the first global strike on the 20th of September with many of her colleagues who've been running the initiative in the US. This is really significant that this movement has arrived in a big way in the US. And it's also significant because on the 23rd, world leaders will be gathering at the United Nations at the request of Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General, to begin in earnest the political process leading towards more national ambition under the Paris Agreement. And we have, after that starting gun, a little more than a year to really step up. So these strikes couldn't come at a better time to build momentum. How are you guys feeling about it? I think it's just extraordinary that the the youth uh, climate strikes, I was just considering recently what I find incredibly exciting about what's going on at the moment is it's, I mean, there have obviously been global political movements before, but I've never really felt or sensed anything like this. This is people all over the world coming together um, regarding this critical issue. Um, The youth climate strikes are just, you know, a perfect symbol of it. And, um, you know, at a moment when inside nations we seem to be dividing ourselves, I think it's fantastic to use Christiana's phrase that on climate change, the world seems to be uniting. So that, that global character of what's going on, I think, is, is the most exciting thing. I, I, I agree. And I've been um, thinking of other civil disobedience examples that we've had in history, because I, I classify these climate strikes as civil disobedience. And two things have struck me. The first is that what is common between what we're seeing with these young people in the streets and other civil disobedience movements is that it is those who are most affected who finally take to the streets. So you see that in apartheid uh, South Africa, you see it in the civil rights movements in the United States, and you see it now with young people uh, who have understood that they are the most affected because all of us, or rather, let me say me, I'm the oldest on this uh, on this podcast, uh, I, I will probably not see the full impacts of climate change. But those, those young people who are striking on the streets will, and they have understood that they are the most affected. So it's interesting to note that the peak in the public pressure comes not 
when those who are leading the first wave of the policy change and all of that happens, but rather when those who are most affected and have previously had the least voice, when they get mobilized and they take over the microphone. So I think that's, that... Just, that just is, to pause there, Cristiano, that's yeah. super interesting. I mean, I don't think I've heard that analysis put that way, but now you say it, the kind of penny really drops for me. And we haven't really seen that up to now, right? It's, and, and that does seem to be a common theme of previous attempts, those that are most vulnerable and most effective. They carry a kind of different type of moral authority in campaigning. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they, they are the ones who really can raise the flag. But the other thing that I wanted to share, the other thought that I've been thinking is there is a difference why that is the commonality. There is a difference in the civil disobedience movements that we've seen in history and this one. And that is that all of the other civil disobedience movements have been national movements because the injustice that they have been um, marching against or, 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 or um, speaking against has been a nationally bounded injustice. This is different because climate change is a global injustice. Every single child in every single country is affected today and will be even more affected tomorrow. So it is not surprising that what you see is leadership of these young people spring up in all different countries. It's not just in one country. And we can speak about the difference of the United States, but you do see that there are young people, mostly, by the way, young women, who are speaking up and taking the leadership on these youth climate strikes in many different countries. Yeah, and when you when you talk to Cristiano about like that the, they're the ones who have most invested in it, there is a phrase in uh, in activism which you, we probably all know. It says, "Those who wear the chains are the most fit to break them." It's that same principle. And they seem to have. I mean, they do seem to have penetrated in a way that um, th I have never seen a climate movement penetrate like this and pick up speed like this. And that point you just made is really interesting. You know, they're vulnerable. They are the group that's most likely to be seriously affected by this. I think there's also something really interesting about the tone because it is evident that they are angry with this situation. They are aware of the injustice, but there's there's still, and I'd be curious to know if you guys feel this too, there's a tone of inclusivity about it that really makes it feel like everyone is welcome. And I have, sometimes campaigning can become a very inside game and it feels like you're sort of not part of it and it's this other group and then other groups are excluded. But this feels remarkably open, um, which is a sort of refreshing different approach. Do you feel that too as a difference here? I would certainly agree, Tom, that that's the way that they started. Um, and I certainly hope that they will continue with that spirit. I have heard some information being shared with me and with others that there is uh, the, the ugly head of exclusion sometimes uh, coming up. And I certainly hope that they will resist that and really be inclusive of geographies so that there will not be the competition between one country and another, the leadership in one country and another, or the um, competition between generations or professions or 
for you know all kinds of competitions and uh, and and divisions that could easily come up. I really hope because climate change is doesn't look at gender, it doesn't look at geography, it doesn't look at a passport, it doesn't look at your profession, it doesn't even look at your age. It doesn't. It is completely inclusive in that sense, and so I hope that they will keep that spirit. You know, I, you, Christiana, you sent around um, some clips of some of these young activists. Nomi Wadler, she's actually 11. She was on TV saying no one expects a bunch of 10, 11-year-olds to be political activists. But what's frightening and yet inspiring about climate change is how these people, these young people with clear sight in David Attenborough's word, mature so quickly. And Penelope Lee, a 16-year-old climate coordinator, she said, she talked about we are vulnerable, which came up earlier, but and she used a phrase I, I don't think I'm ever going to forget. She talked about how people, you know, build wealth, but she talked about the cost of our wealth. And that mm. went very deeply with me. I thought it was a, a, a very, uh, a very thought provoking and, and, and memorable way to, to see that this, this personal selfishness can end up with a kind of um, collective idiocy. You know, now that you mentioned Naomi Wadler, she um, is a very active um, leader for the gun control issue in the United States. And um, Greta, when I don't know if you remember when we interviewed her several months ago, she told us that she had been inspired by the young people in the United States who yeah. were demonstrating against the lack of gun the control. Parkland. It was the Parkland kids, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, the Parkland kids. And so that's very interesting, right? That that's where the inspiration came from. Uh, she is actually meeting with them when she is in the United States. They have a lot in common and they have a lot that is actually different because gun control is a U.S.-based issue, whereas, uh, as we've said, climate is a, a global issue. But what is uh, interesting to note is, as in climate, also as in the lack of uh, gun control, it is the young people who are most affected. So again, it is confirming this, that it is those that are most deeply affected, most deeply threatened, whose voice can actually use the microphone in a most compelling way. Yeah, for sure. I've actually been in the US for the last few weeks. And um, so I was I was in Manhattan when Greta's boat arrived, uh, the, the Melitza wow. that had sailed across the North Atlantic over the last two weeks. And I went down uh, to welcome her when she arrived. And it was, it was really something. Um, first of all, because as she came up, um, the Hudson River, the UN sent this fleet of SDG boats out, which are little sailing boats and all their flags had all the different goals on them. And then they kind of made their way up. And by the time they got to the marina, there were, I don't know how, I reckon a few thousand people there. Wow. And everybody was waiting as the boat came up the river and people were chanting and singing and and crying. And it just the emotion of the moment really brought home to me you know, what Greta means and what this movement means. It really has come to symbolize hope at a challenging time. Mm. And I think it's just a bright light of positivity and possibility. So it makes me feel really optimistic, actually. And, and, and to just sort of shine a light on the next few weeks, as far as I know, and I'm interested in your perspective, Christiana, right now, the Secretary General's Climate Summit on the 23rd of September is facing some pretty formidable political headwinds. You know, there are leaders in power around the world 
who are much less friendly to this issue than the leaders that we had in 2015 with the Paris Agreement. And the Secretary General and the UN and others are doing their very best to push countries to come forward with commitments. But it's tough, and um, we'll see what comes out of it. Um, so this moment on the 20th, this moment, global moment of unity just before that happens, where everybody around the world in any country can strike from school, can strike from their jobs, um, and show solidarity with this movement really feels like it could not come at a more important time. Yes, I would agree. And, and that's why it's important that the strikes not be only in New York or only yeah. in the United States, because otherwise those leaders from other countries who will be coming to New York for the General Assembly and for the summit, it would be too easy for them to just dismiss this as public pressure because the United States has not been active on this issue. So the fact that uh, they have been wise enough to encourage the strikes and the demonstrations in all countries is actually a very good thing because uh, the leaders will be in New York, but they will definitely be following the news in their own countries. Great. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Christiana. And so, and, and we'll cover this issue more over the next few weeks leading into that summit and the strikes. But um, for today, um, I've actually had a couple of days ago, a really fascinating conversation with one of the leaders of the climate strikes in the US. Um, and her name is Isra Hersey. She is the executive director of the US Youth Climate Strike. Uh, she's 16 years old. She's a Somali American from Minneapolis. And um, Isra is kind of amazing. You know, she really kind of came to this issue from both uh, an ecological point of view, but also almost maybe more from a social justice point of view. She really saw that, um, you know, to your earlier point, kind of taking it further, Christiana, the people who are most affected by this are also minorities. It's young people and minorities and, you know, people of limited means. And she saw that and that kind of spurred up in her a sense of, of wanting to fight for justice. And that's been one of her main motivators. Um, I was really impressed with her and her kind of organizing ability and what she's done in sh such a short space of time. She also has a very interesting family situation. She is the daughter of the Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who is part of the squad with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who have been such targets for President Trump and have kind of stood up to him and, you know, pushed for more open immigration and issues on climate change, etc. So she's got a fascinating kind of political background in her family, but it's very much her own person um, and pushing, you know, specifically on this issue. Very exciting. And uh, you interviewed her because you were there? How did that happen? So I was actually there. I was visiting my father-in-law in Minneapolis. And so I'd been in the US doing work stuff for a bit. So I was in Minneapolis visiting my father-in-law and I went downtown to meet with Isra. Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation. Let's listen to that. Let's hear it. Here's a conversation. So Isra, it's so nice to meet you. Yes, yeah, nice to meet you too. Um, you're based here in Minneapolis yeah. and you do so many different things. You've just been telling me from your studies to different types of organizing. But I'm really curious about you have this very prominent role in this big national movement now to try to get more and more young people understanding the situation we're facing. Can we just start with you setting out kind of exactly what you do in that space and kind of how you got into it as well? And then we'll look forward from there in terms of what's coming. Right. So I'm the executive director of U.S. Youth Climate Strike. 
Um, and it all started in late January of this year, um, all because there was no group organizing the massive strike in the United States for March 15th. Mm. Um, FFF didn't want to do it, and neither did any of the other youth groups. And so me, um, I was contacted by a friend via Instagram um, to, like, help organize Minnesota. A friend locally here? Um, no, she's from Colorado. Her name okay. is Haven. And she contacted me asking me to organize from Minnesota, and I I just happened to ask her if she had any help nationally, and she didn't. And so I offered, and from there we found another co-founder um, from New York City, and we essentially just, like, contacted all the people we knew um, and organized a strike for March 15th with, like, a few hundred thousand people here in the United States. Um, the first, th- the thing about it was we didn't want it to become like a thing, a group or an org. Right. Um, but so many people wanted us to continue, and so we decided on like creating a name and continue moving forward as U.S. Youth Climate Strike. Okay, so now there's three of you, right? Um, no, now I'm the only one. Now you're the only one. Yep. Okay. And what do you do specifically in that role? Because there's so many different people doing different stuff. How do you coordinate that? Right. So I guess I'm like the overarching, um, you know, like I oversee everything as executive director. Uh, you know, I help manage the national team as well as all of our local organizers and state organizers. I also like focus on a lot of the parts that we have holes in. So every anything that isn't really being done right then and there, I end up doing it because it just becomes easier. And also right. I give in a lot of the insight for the group. So how many people is that overall that you think you're coordinating who are kind of giving time? I would say a few hundred. We have okay. about 50 to 60 state organizers or, like, state leads. And then um, all of them have, like, local teams in different cities across the country. So I would say at least 200, maybe a little bit less, but I'm really not sure on exact numbers. So you have 50 to 60 state organizers. You, like, get on calls with them. You figure out strategy. They work out what that means in their state. Yeah, so our national team has, um, there's five of us, and one of our um, national team organizers focuses just on state leads. And so we have calls with them biweekly, and we just, like, talk to them about, this is what we want to see, like, let's talk about it. And then they translate that to their own states um, and their local teams. Even, it's like, um, then their local teams have their own, like, local boards and city leads and everything. So all the governance is figured out at every level, national, statewide, regional, etc. Exactly, yeah. So what, I mean, this must be, I have some inkling of how much time this must take you. You're going to school as well. How do you, how is that for you, carrying that? So that can be a big, it's very exciting, I'm sure, but it's kind of a burden, all of that organization. Right, so I mean, I'm a full-time student, you know, I go to high school. I also now attend college as well as do other extracurriculars within my school and even do some little local organizing while, you know, in just the state of Minnesota. And so it becomes a lot and it becomes really stressful. Um, I don't really go to school a lot of the time. A lot of the work that I do is like on my own free time if I can find some. Um, You know, it's really hard to have a social life um, because organizing takes up so much of my time. Um, But like, you know, I do what I do because I love it and I wouldn't really change anything because I like the fact that I get to still be a regular high school student yeah. while also being able to organize nationally. So you so you do what you do because you love it. That's great and that's super important. But I'm sure you also do what you do because you're motivated by the outcome, right? Exactly, yeah. So tell me about that. Like how did – how why are you so motivated by the outcome? Because not everybody is. Right. I think that climate is the thing that is like the massive overarching issue that everything fits under. I don't think 
um, this, you know, climate conversation is specific to just, you know, the trees or the environment. It's specific to everything. And I think when we talk about things like, you know, racial equity or when we talk about the patriarchy or colonialism, all of these things fit under climate change and the climate crisis. And so I think it's important to recognize that this issue is going to affect all of us, regardless mm. of when or how big it's still going to hit every single person on this planet. And so I think it's important to fight for something when, you know, if we don't fight for the climate, then we don't have anything else. Because when we hit that turning point where we can't, we can't go back, then, you know, this world just is going to continue to deteriorate and we won't have anything to live on. Yeah. And all of the issues that people care about fit under fit under the umbrella. And so I think it's important to fight for such an overarching issue so you can build such a massive grassroots movement to fight for all of our lives. So what I'm hearing and what I'm hearing you're saying is that you are massively motivated by social justice and social inequality. Yep. And that you see climate as the primary driver to do something about that. Yeah, I do. I do. I think yeah. like um, climate justice is social justice. I think the climate crisis is everything. And, you know, when you talk about things like, you know, racial inequity or even like you have things like environmental racism, colonialism, imperialism, they all intertwine. And I don't think people sometimes realize that intersection. And when did you join those dots? Can you, can you remember a moment? Is there a story from your past that you could remember? Sure. So I joined my high school's green club my freshman year and I was often the only black person in the room, or the only person of color. And I think that was kind of a little outrageous because I would hear stories of people, you know, dying in um, sub countries in Africa or in Asia right. and some people not even being have like being able to like have clear um, clean air, even in like Southern California, or even in Minneapolis. And so talking about things like, oh, like how we're going to like, there's this thing called the boundary waters here and people yeah. talk about saving it. And I'm like, it's a little, it's a little outrageous to me because, you know, people are dying in our, your own state. You know, we have really, really bad air quality in Minneapolis and nobody talks about it. And so being in spaces like my green club, I even joined a statewide club that happened to be also extremely white and suburban was really an eye opener for me because I realized that a lot of these spaces don't talk about the intersection and they don't talk about black and brown people's lives. Mm. And so being in those spaces made me realize it's like important to always, you know, bring in the conversation of those that are most impacted because you look at indigenous folks in my state and all over the country and, you know, they're dying because they're like reservations, they're losing clean water, their sacred wild rice beds are being destroyed and they don't even, our land, their land was stolen. And so what we're doing is we're even making it worse for them because then they don't get to have the sacred things that they love. And so I think it's important to realize that we don't need to just talk about, you know, white suburbia or trees while they're important. It's also people's lives that are at stake. Hmm. And what have you found in terms of, because I've certainly witnessed that in my time in the environmental community, and I think it's amazing that you've identified it while you're so young to try and do something about that. How, what, ha what happens that's different when the types of people who are really going to be impacted by these things, get organized to try to create change. Can you sort of explain what you've seen in terms of how that can be effective compared to the alternative that you talked about, which tends to be a white, liberal, suburban issue? Right. I think when you see black and brown people 
organizing in an issue that is so white dominated, I think it like is an eye opener, not just for that community, but for the entire world. Mm. Right. When you see black and brown and indigenous folks like getting out on the streets, I think the government realizes it's a real problem, you know, and I think having the people who are most impacted getting involved helps everybody get involved because if they can recognize that their asthma levels are increasing, or that they don't have clean water, right. I think that is an eye opener, not just for this country, but for the entire world. And I think it's important to have people from these quote unquote third world countries getting involved because, you know, they're the ones with the cyclones, they're the ones with the trashy, uh, you know, like you have droughts and you have things like that. And when they get to finally realize that like they have a voice in this movement, I think everything will change. Hmm. And do you think that that's picking up? Do you think that people are now hearing more and more people who are actually being impacted by these things are beginning to identify that and organizing? I do. I definitely think that there's way more people who are being impacted talking about it. And I also think, I think the problem with it, though, is it's like there is no education within those communities, right? Mm. People that live in places like North Minneapolis where they don't have really good air quality don't realize it because nobody goes up to those neighborhoods and lets them know that this is why your child is getting asthma. This is why, you know, black folks are the ones that have increasing asthma levels in the entire country. And when those communities start to get that education and when these, you know, white organizations finally realize it's important to educate people, then I think everybody will have an understanding of what's going on. And I think that the government can't hide anymore because everybody's educated on how climate can impact them personally. Hmm. I'd like to ask you about the school strike so far. So you said this has been going since March and now we're sitting here end of August. Um, you know, the next month is going to be crucial and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. I'm really interested to know your perspective from here in the Midwest, which is not the coast, which obviously is very different. Right both why the school strikes have been so successful and why they haven't been more successful in the US. Because it's quite, it's amazing to see the hundreds of thousands of people, the organizing structure you talked about, and it's an amazing momentum. I would also maybe observe that they haven't caught on in the US yet in the way that they might have done so far right. in Europe. So I'm really interested to know like why, why the success and why not more success? Yeah, I think that the United States is really, really different than the entire world. I think mm. we have such insane systems in place that make it, you know, we talk about free speech, but in reality, free speech for who? Because people can go out and protest on the streets and risk arrest, right? And I think it's a scary place for black and brown people in America. Mm. It's a scary place for queer people. It's a scary place for almost everybody unless you're white, cis, and a male. Right. And so I think it's important to recognize that these systems do exist in Europe, but they're not as aggressive in the United States. They're not as aggressive in Europe. And I think it's easier for people to like go out on the streets and risk their lives because it's less the temptation of like cops are going to kill you, right? And so mm. I think it's like when we talk about who gets to do escalated actions, we have to think every in America, we have to think of like, okay, we have to find white people who are interested in doing that because they're the ones that are not gonna get killed. Mm. They're the ones that are not gonna face really heavy charges. And, you know, we can look at the civil rights movement of how aggressive those black people had to, like, the stuff that they had to go through just so that they could fight for something like the Civil Rights Act really shows you on why it's scary for people to, like, get out on the streets in America. And also I think you have this, like, wave of apoliticalness in this um, country of, like, people being like, oh, we can't do anything about it because all this bad stuff's happening, but we don't care anymore. And obviously it's horrible and it's horrifying, but we also have an extreme uh, alt-right, an alt-right group here too. And so it's like, 
there's just so many reasons on why um, the United States hasn't been as big as it could be. But when the United States does start to mobilize as big as Europe does, I think that, you know, this movement will become 10 times bigger because we're the biggest contributor to climate to the climate crisis in the entire world. Hmm. And so when the United States decides to finally step up, I think, you know, the movement will be, like, insanely massive. And so it's really a plan. It's, like, strategic in order to figure out how to get to that level like we used to be at, you know, the right. anti-war movement, the women's rights movement, et cetera. So tell me about that strategy. Right. So it's really, it's obviously really difficult, but I think sure. the first thing is it's, like, education, so showing people how the climate crisis can impact them on a personal level, right? Like, even if you live in the suburbs of how, like, this can impact you, because it's, like, the climate crisis is so big that everybody gets impacted by it, right? And even, like, your own family. For example, like, my family lives in Somalia. Um, A lot of my family does. And so realizing that, like, telling them about, like, the droughts and how, like, that is a reason because of the climate crisis is, like, a reason for people to, like, realize, like, oh, like, this is why Hmm. um, this happens. You know, people don't associate asthma with the climate crisis. People don't associate a lot of things with it. And so when people start to get to that point where they recognize it, I think that it'll, like, make people way more mobilized and way more um, political in that sense. And there's a point there that connects to what you said earlier about the right messenger, right? Right. Because that needs to be the right messenger who is credible and has authority in that community rather than just the same old messages coming from another place. Okay, so there's education. What else is the strategy to build there? Um, So you have education, and I also think, like, meeting people where they are, right? Because organizing and protesting, that isn't accessible to everybody. People have jobs, people need daycare, all of these things. And so recognizing that instead of having people always mobilize, like, going into these neighborhoods and talking to them and also, like, telling them and also doing town halls or showing them how they can do really, really small actions that can impact their lives. Mm -hmm. And making things like solar panels accessible and free or teaching people about recycling and composting. Um, And so doing really, really small actions in communities and going to those communities and telling them this is what you can do I think is important because we always are talking about things like the strikes or massive mobilizations, but that's not meeting people where they are. It's, you know, we did this thing with Climate Strike where we had... Um, like these boot camps or workshops across the country. So we had the them in like neighborhoods and in local areas so that people across the country could go in and like figure out what's going on and also like meeting them where they are, like showing them this is what you can do in your own local community. There's an interesting point there about agency, isn't there? Because one of the things we've always found for a long time on climate change is it's this massive problem between my sense of personal agency and the scale of the problem. Right. And one of the responses can to feel powerless. And I wonder in the communities you're talking about who maybe already feel somewhat powerless, you have an even bigger task. Do you yeah. think that's true? I, yes, I do. I think it's like, I think there's a conversation between individual and corporation. And mm. I think a lot of people realize, think, a lot of people think um, it's individual acts that will solve the climate crisis. And while I do agree to some extent, I do think it's important to recognize that it's also very important to fight over these um, corporations. You know, you have things like colonialism and imperialism that uh, causes such massive problems within the climate crisis and then blaming black and brown people for not being vegan or for not recycling is extremely unfair because it's not their fault on why this crisis is so massive, right? It's these white corporations, these, you know, massive problems like capitalism that makes things such, so, um, I guess, massive for people. And I think, 
you have, um, so I think it's like important to realize that it is a sense of agency, like even on the individual level of like, oh, like I will try my best to compost. I will try my best to live sustainably, but also communities have been doing that for centuries. Mm. And so, you know, just showing them like, this is how, like what you're doing is also helping. You know, it's like you taking the bus because, you know, like low income folks take the buses to go places because they can't afford cars. That is actually like, you know, a great step of like, oh, look, you're actually doing mm. something that's important. And so also recognizing that it's like you're already living a sustainable life and I'm not going to yell at you for not being vegan. Right. I'm not going to yell at you for like using like single use plastics because it's like it's not their fault. Right. And so I think also when people realize that, like not to blame people, especially low income black and brown folks for things that they can't control, I think also showcases the idea of like agency um, and individual versus corporation. And agency can be political as well, right? Right. You know, helping people people to feel a sense of political engagement in mm-hmm. agency is a powerful part of that. So what's happening next? We've got a big month coming up. Yeah, we do, September 20th. Yeah. Greta's arriving next couple of days. Yeah, is that going to make a difference? Um, I think to some extent. Um, I think Greta is definitely a really, really big, um, you know, figure within the movement. But I also think that there are a lot of, I guess, a little bit of, like, problems when it comes to, like, having somebody sail into the United States to talk about climate only because she doesn't bring the discussion of intersectionality Mm. when she talks. Um, And I guess that's a little bit of a problem, not that obviously she's an amazing human being, but when you're coming into such a country like the United States and you don't talk about those types of issues, I think it raises a little bit of a concern, especially when you're going to places like New York City, which is like one of the most diverse places in this country. Mm. Um, But I do think that it'll open people's eyes a little bit more because she did take an entire boat from right. I don't even remember what it country it was from yeah. England yeah, yeah all the way to yeah. New York City and um, I mean it is dedication but also recognizing that it's also privilege right. you know it's like I think people don't recognize that it's like the amount of privilege somebody has to like do something like a boat to the United States from Europe is insane and also recognizing that it's like she is an important part of the movement but also she isn't the only part right yeah um so what do you think is going to happen on September 20th? I think um, we're going to see even more than a million people out mm. on the streets. Mm. I think a lot more young people are getting mobilized. And I think, you know, luckily we had so much time to let people know when it was coming. And so I think it's a little bit easier for folks to, like, take off work or, you know, let their teachers know. Um, and I also think it's really, really powerful that, like, we had a few strikes prior, mm-hmm. and this, is, this one's going to be massive. And, you know, it's the UN summit coming up, too, on September 23rd. And so having so many young people mobilize right before is, like, insane. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think you have a very inspiring, optimistic view of the future. I want to ask you about that in a minute because I think that's not everybody has that, right? There's a lot of despair around, and I think that's part of our problem. I just want to ask you, I have to ask you, I mean, you have this amazing mother who is on the national stage playing this incredible role. What's it been like for you watching her get elected and play the role that she's playing? And to what degree has that fed into your sense? I mean, you're clearly your own person with your own, you know, your own approach and strategy, et cetera, and that's entirely evident. But that must also be an inspiration and be instructive for you in terms of how you change the world. Right. So I think, like, you know, having a mother in Congress is definitely eye-opening. I definitely understand you know, how Congress functions a lot more than I did prior. I learned a lot because of her. Um, And so I guess it gives me a sense of how, like, the political system functions. And I also recognize that so many Americans don't know how Congress works. And so I think 
I guess it's a sense of education for myself and also how I can bring that education, you know, to my own communities and to the, my, the people that, you know, follow me or whatever. Uh, but it's also, obviously, it's really inspiring and also, like, seeing all of the, like, green bills going into Congress and all these things existing is kind of cool, too, because, like, I have a closer connection to them now. Um, yeah. You know, Congress doesn't have a great reputation right. at, in general at the moment. Do you feel, having had that ringside seat, do you share that sense of despair that some people feel or do you feel like, you know, we can get breakthroughs in Congress? Oh, I definitely feel that sense of despair, you know, um, like with half of the House being um, Republican and another half or like another fourth being moderate, it's really, really hard to be optimistic on that front. And so that's why I think it's important to like bring power to the people and also like Obviously, electoral politics plays a role into these types of movements, but it's not everything. Hmm. You know what I mean? It's also holding politicians accountable because there are hundreds of people in the House, in the Senate that don't care that their constituents are dying. And I guess people like my mother, people like the rest of the squad are definitely um, important parts to play in such a in a crazy time because you have people bringing that conversation to the national stage. And when we have hundreds like that, I think we can create real change. But in the meantime, I'll continue protesting. Right. So this podcast is called Outrage and Optimism. And the reason we've called that is we think that both the outrage of people on the street and the optimism of creative policymakers, innovators, etc., need to come together if we're going to find our way through that. Right. What do you think about that? I definitely agree. I think it obviously it's extremely hard to be optimistic in this time, especially, you know, 2019. But... I definitely do think that optimism is important in order to create real change. You cannot be pessimistic if you're working with things like the climate crisis. Because if I thought that the world was going to end, which I mean possibly, but I can't have that mindset or I wouldn't be organizing. You know, I would be stuck at home probably really, really scared. And so I think using that fear and that optimism um, to, like, go out on the streets and also showing people that, like, we can do something to change this, like the strikes are doing something, is definitely extremely important to like get people outraged and on the streets. Mm. And just connected to that, you know, some people see the reality that you just described, the potential challenging future, what their lives are going to be like, and they don't make, you know, that seems to have spurred you out of the house, on the street, organizing, getting moving. Some people have the opposite reaction that you described a minute ago. What would you say to people like that who may be listening, who feel very overwhelmed, who feel depressed? How do you how do you help them come to a sense of useful and meaningful outrage and energy around this moment? Right. I do think um, so. I would say like recognizing that this climate crisis impacts your life and not just yours, but millions and yeah. bi like billions of people across this world. And so I think realizing that like sure it might feel like sometimes you don't have that big of an impact, but, you know, recognizing that if you have the privilege to go out on the streets, to do something, to vote, then you should. And you shouldn't sit around and use and let that privilege go to waste because some of us don't have that privilege, you know, and if, and obviously, you know, things like mental health are important, but it's also important to recognize that we don't have a lot of time left to fix this problem. And if you want to be upset, you can be, but use that anger to do something about it because we don't have a lot of time to switch this around and we need everyone involved to make a change. Amazing. 
Isra, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Great. So I, I really enjoyed having that conversation. I'm sorry you guys couldn't join me um, uh, talking with Isra. What do you take from that now that you've had the chance to hear what we discussed? Well, I was really struck by just how phenomenally, um, how can I put it, uh, rounded, um, just sort of super intelligent. You know, if you told me that uh, she was 60 and had spent her life thinking about uh, global political issues, I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised. And she's 16. Um, and it's it's a little bit frightening for me because it makes me think that children are having to grow up incredibly quickly. Uh, but what she said was inspiring. And I learned a lot, actually, uh, seeing climate change as an issue that cuts across all countries and the rich and the poor and very different perspectives on climate change. I particularly uh, enjoyed hearing her um, talk about how the USA, you know, is... um, can be a very scary place and you know you can you can you can go and demonstrate in the streets and if you're uh, you know a, a, a person of color you can get you know trouble from the police or shot or you know there are very different experiences but but she talked the other thing i thought that was wonderful about her is, is is bringing climate change home to people and she talked about how in her own family she was connecting with um, some of her somali family members about how the droughts in somalia are part of the same issue and helping to connect people up and make it personal to people i felt that that was uh, a, a really great way of framing it from a, from an inspiring, new, but incredibly effective political activist. Yeah, I, I would agree with those impressions. And I was, um, I was truly shocked by um, one of the points that she made that Paul has picked up, which is why, in, from her point of view, we don't see more mobilization on climate change in the US. I frankly had always assumed that the environmental awareness in general, in and certainly on climate change in the United States is just way, way lower than in other regions such as Europe, for example. I just thought there is less mobilization because there's less awareness. But she has, and that may well be true, but Isra has added to that the component of the violence against demonstrators, especially if they come from uh, minority groups. So I was actually quite shocked to uh, to hear that um, because it is, it, 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 on top of the climate injustice, that is just so unacceptable. No, I, I agree with all of that. And the, the other thing which I was sort of struck by, and I've since kind of looked at some of the things she's written in her social media feeds and things, um, that, you know, she's really got a point about, you know, not only demonstrators of people who are, you know, on the front lines of feeling these impacts, but also, um, you know, racial diversity in the environmental movement in general. And I think that, you know, with the exception of the United Nations, which of course is very diverse, there, there is a lot of racial homogeny inside the environmental movement in many places, and that is to its detriment. And I think it's mm. kind of overdue that that kind of evolves and changes, um, which is, which is you know, going to take a while. But I think having people like Israel there who, um, you know, can kind of champion that, can remind the rest of us that actually this is all of our jobs to help this transition as quickly as possible to ensure that there's proper representation in these leadership positions because, you know, that benefits all of us and that strengthens the movement in all kinds of ways. 
Well, and and to harp on something we've already said, it is those minority groups that are the most vulnerable. Right. Totally. It is not. It's not a you know the 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 white upper class privileged people. They will also be living under the effects, but they have much more resources to defend themselves to the effects. Right. Yeah, and and she also talked about how you know a lot of um, poverty is is often associated uh with with an absence of choice and so a lot of the you know the the, i i know that for example if i'm traveling by train instead of taking an airplane or something it costs five times as much uh, or more Uh, that's that's a privilege for me not always christian is not always (laughs) yeah not always Cool. All right. I think that's it. So uh, this has been a great episode. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Again, this is a sort of very optimistic area of our work at the moment. And I hope you feel equally inspired. And even more than that, I hope that you are planning uh, to strike from school, to strike from your work, 20th of September, put it in your diary. This is something we all have to get behind. The global political moment is challenging, but that doesn't mean that we don't do anything about it. This is our chance to make this a global moment of unity beyond any we have previously seen. So stick it in your diary and make sure you do it. We'll all be there. We hope you will be too. So just so that we know what we're sticking in our diary, Tom, Friday, September 20th. Yeah, And and actually, I'm glad you said that. And 27th, there's two. And 27th, yes. Two yeah. Fridays in a row. So no matter where you are, what you're doing, uh, take uh, a few hours out of the day to join the strikes. It's important and it's a good, good thing. Is everyone at CDP getting the day off, Paul? Do you know that uh, we actually have, um, we have said to uh, members of our staff that if they are on the strike, then that's a perfectly normal day. It's not holiday. But if they stay at home and they don't come to work and they don't strike, well, then that is holiday. Got it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank Bye, you. Bye, everybody. Bye. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. The team includes Pete Clutton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivikarnak, Marina Mancilla, Callum Green, and Zoe Cholakantich. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrop. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do hit subscribe and leave us a review. We also love the feedback, podcast at globaloptimism.com. So many of you have been writing in, and we do try to respond to every email. Thanks for that kind of feedback. We really appreciate it. Please keep them coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs>